Welcome to episode 13 of How Public Works. This is a podcast about how government and society interact and where you as a citizen can be informed and find a place where you can engage and transform our society together. I'm your host, Ilmar Simonovskis. Today, we are with Peter Ewan, who most recently was with the World Wildlife Fund Canada as director of Canada's Endangered Species Program and then led WWF's Arctic conservation efforts before retiring in 2020. His work centered on flagship species conservation in globally significant regions such as whales and polar bears, accelerating in recovery of species at risk and increasing the connection of urban citizens to wildlife species and their needs. He is now involved with Project Swaltail in West Toronto as well as a program in the zone which is focused on inspiring citizens to build a better balanced future and get practically involved with wildlife and nature in their neighborhoods by restoring locally sourced native plant habitats in gardens and other private and public spaces. Welcome, Peter. Thank you, Elmar. Great to be here. So you originally grew up in England. What was that like for you and how much of that experience has been responsible informing your career path. <laughs> yeah, well, as, as a youngster in England, and uh, really when I went to university at the age of 18, it was Scotland, and I guess I was moving north <laughs> from then onwards. So, you know, I had a pretty conventional, privileged, white, uh, British upbringing. My father's family were poor farmers, on the Welsh border, and my mum's family were horticulturalists on a big estate. And so my brother and I um, hated the idea of helping out in the garden. Mm -hmm. (laughs) So, you know, it's something I don't put on my resume, but obviously the fact that they were out there, you know, whenever the sun was up, growing vegetables and flowers and manicuring their garden had an impact despite my brother and I rebelling, um, in our early 60s now, we're both very keen and quite good gardeners. Even though, of course, I, with uh, my Jack Russell dog and a pair of binoculars in the age of six onwards, of course, roamed footpaths and wild areas wherever I could find them in the UK. Of course, that had a huge impact on me as a a naturalist, really, and later ecologist, conservation scientist. But... uh, you know, that core underpinning doesn't go away, really. What your parents are doing does influence, you know, what kids see see them doing from the age of two onwards, I think. Well, and, and how did you end up in Canada? Well, you know, after many diverse adventures and, you know, schools and everything, and I took five years off after my first degree and eventually you know, after having a great time in the Shetland Islands and then moving to the Highlands, I was surveying the reintroduction of the sea eagle, all that kind of great stuff. Uh, I just loved the the license to make a bit of money and to go everywhere in the Highlands and Islands. But um, a friend told me that there was um, an opportunity to get back to the Shetland Islands and to get a, a doctorate out of it via Oxford University because there was a big oil spill, the first oil that came ashore in the UK, 
from the North Sea seals um, came ashore in the Shetland Islands. And despite all of the assurances of engineers and government and everybody in the industry, within three days, there was a major oil spill. <laughs> and that killed many loons, many sea otters, and a little bird called the black guillemot, the cousin of the puffin, really, which was very special in the Shetland Islands. Um, and Oxford University won the contract to um, basically find out what the heck was going on and how to recover those black guillemots or tasties as they're called there. And I got that uh, contract. So that took me for part of the year to Oxford. And the rest of the year, of course, I could have a great time in the Shetland Islands doing applied, useful work with um, these wonderful seabirds and wonderful marine treeless habitats. And of course, as tends to happen, I met a Canadian while at Oxford University. And mm -hmm. she'd finished uh, a couple of years of postdocs. Um, she got offered a job at York University. And I jumped at the chance of coming to this enormous, fabulous country. And really, 30 years on, I'm so glad I was able to do that because Canada is so much more magnificent than the UK in terms of its uh, cosmopolitan accommodation of diversity. And mm -hmm. of course, it's, I've been so lucky to explore coast to coast to coast and all provinces and territories and many wonderful areas which only exist in small fragments in the UK. Do you know what that experience that you described with the, uh, with the oil spill and working with university in that study, you know, because you were still a young man at that time, and clearly having you know some concern, some some passion for the environment. What was it like for you emotionally to to sort of experience that kind of an event, that kind of a you know a disaster, I guess? And and, and how does that make you feel? Well, for many of us raised in the fifties, of course, we came through the anti-nuclear Cold War kind of threat and realities and so you know inspired by David Attenborough in particular who you know when I met him of course my inspiration level went up <laughs> um, you know I was an ardent got to look after this gorgeous planet countryside you know escape landscape with all of these things that were you know coming to pressurize and bear on the future positions of that. And so, you know, if you believe in evidence-based decisions, and of course you don't just ignore all the science that you know exists and you're trained how to analyze. And, you know, emotionally, that became tougher and tougher uh, to see how, you know, the, the writings of um, Fritz Schumacher, Small is Beautiful, and all those schools of thinking about true sustainability, everything by the time I was 18, was starting to trend in the wrong direction. You know, people taking right. risks, selfish gain, short-term decisions, power grabs, and really the looking after the planet and its life support systems, including biodiversity and ecosystems, really was just a, a trivial afterthought. And everyone tried to check the box and carry on maximizing GDP growth. So that actually got you down. And the way that I got over that um, <laughs> was by working hard and getting better at what I did, collecting numbers and communicating steadily better, and then finding respite in Celtic and other forms of uh, rock and other music to keep my 
my sanity? So it's a great mm-hmm. question, and I think that is very much the case for an even larger number of young people today who are, uh, even without the pandemic, uh, really asking tough questions about the future that our generations uh, are leaving them with, which really, if you paid attention at school, is an impossible uh, legacy of unsustainable nightmares that we are leaving them because of those selfish power grabs and continuing growth, even when uh, it's close to five planets that we would need based on today's global science in order to be operating sustainably. We don't have five planets. Yeah, it's incredible. It really is incredible. And for you to, you know, to start your career on that path and to basically see a lifetime of of that journey. And and I want to ask you, you know, I mean, as you as you came to Canada, you know, you made some great contributions in your role with the Great Lakes Wildlife Toxicology Programs for the Canadian Wildlife Services, a continuation of this passion of yours and concern. Mm. Uh, you know, you are documenting impacts of toxic pollutants in wildlife at the top of the aquatic food chain. Can you tell us about what you did and what was the most significant learning in mm. that journey? Well, that was a, a great example. Through my uh, marine seabird connections, of course, I, I quickly transformed myself when I got to live in Toronto to a freshwater marine <laughs> ecologist mm. and was able to join because the governments of the day then federally created these large regional action plans with a budget attached to them. So the Great Lakes Action Plan was a very good binational endeavor, actually, to help understand, monitor, research, and then restore um, ecosystem quality in the Great Lakes and in the Great Lakes Basin. Uh, now nearly 40 million humans live. But, of course, the indicators of aquatic health are there in the form of um, you know, fish, plankton, and herring gulls and cormorants, turtles, and ospreys and eagles that I specialize in study when I was there. And those things tell us how our ecosystem is doing, uh, and ultimately humans depend on it. So... You know, when I came to Canada, I did contracts and then joined the Canadian Wildlife Service. And I was so amazed at not only the, the size of the Great Lakes and the ability I had to go all, to all of the offshore islands to do this research, but also the, the sense of optimism because, you know, it was just like Obama says, yes, we can. And mm. the Rachel Carson who most of your listeners will know, in 1962, she published this book, Silent Spring. I mean, when I was born in the mid-50s, was regarded as a complete rebel and, you know, granola hippie and should be just dismissed. But she was right, you know, these persistent organic chlorine chemicals, DDT, PCBs, different dioxins, you name them, they were mm-hmm. harming the ecosystem. And the further up the food chain you went, including to humans, the worse the impacts became. And, you know, when finally in what was the late 70s, early 80s, governments like Canadian One finally listened to the science and not the uh, the spin of uh, selfish industrial captains, um, we, we turned the tap off. 
and they started to regulate and industries started to replace those chemicals by ones that didn't have as bad impact. And of course, when you're monitoring the uh, concentrations of these persistent pollutants in the lipids in you know, snapping turtles or herring gull eggs or osprey blood eggs or even bald eagle eggs, you see them starting to decline. And of course now, people mm. just regard it as you know, a common thing to see an eagle or an osprey and an otter swimming past their cottage. Well, that wasn't the case in the post-war era because these chemicals basically um, extinguished most of the local populations of these, these wonderful predators. So we could restore those marine uh, Antarctic systems and uh, stop using those nasty chemicals. So it took 40 or 50 years, but we're on the right track. And I guess that leads me, Ilmar, to, you know, my sense of optimism now for what I'm uh, concentrating on, trying to reconnect urban people through their gardens to a similar sense of optimism that they can convert parts of their garden to wildlife habitat. And so connect up places for bees and moths and butterflies and birds to hopscotch their way across the landscape and improve the overall health of our, our ecosystems rather than just manicuring lawn and put chemicals and fertilizer and masses of water and greenhouse gases into manicuring lawns. So for people who've got balconies or lawns, this is one of the most obvious ways to reconnect urban people uh, with the natural world and better appreciate why we need to look after it. 83% of us in Canada now living in cities, uh, it's such a no-brainer because uh, not many Canadians will have the privilege that I've had to go out and study and catch polar bears and narwhals and other whales. And um, you can see and do some fascinating things very close to home, and that is the start of that reconnection to nature, which is so critical to leaving the planet overall in decent shape for our children and grandchildren in turn. It's interesting, Peter, when you describe that experience that you had with, you know, with the, uh, the the chlorinated chemical compounds. And then I, I remember reading a book. You know, I I was born in the mid '60s, and I remember reading a book as a as a young child. It was actually a, a book my father had in the house around, you know, sort of toxins in the environment. And it was probably something that was not a very popular read at the time, you know, in the early 70s. But um, if you think about our generations today, like the youth today, you know, a lot of them, you know, they're they're born in, in 2000. And that story that you just described resonated for me because I remember that book. I remember the discussions at the time. I didn't understand the, 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 the full impact. But for you who actually was at the front line and probably a rebel of your own sorts to be able to be in that space and look at what's going on and maybe not have a very broad public community supporting those issues. How was that for you as a, the satisfaction or the risk or the challenge of sort of seeing that, that work unfold and to the point where 40 years later, you're like, wow, we actually can do good things if we, if we put our attention to it. How did you feel about all that? Time, of course, it's a tough 
thing to bear on your shoulders and it seems day by day like there's no progress but there are a few examples of significant paradigm shifts or shift in priorities in public policy the toxics cleanup is one of them uh, to give you a sufficient boost to be optimistic <laughs> going forward <laughs> and uh, I wanted I wanted to come back actually because uh, you know I have two daughters and they're off doing their early 20s thing right now of course but my neighbors next door they are very interesting they're both lawyers um, and they have three young kids you know four six and eight at the local school mm -hmm. but through the first phase of the pandemic they're from southern Saskatchewan farm country they just basically evacuated Toronto and let their kids loose on the land around the farm basically you know doing what um, Gerald Durrell and many did when they were young. And so when they came back here in August, preparing for the return to school, you know, I was doing some gardening out the front and these kids came over and rather than going, it's a bug, they were going, what's that? What's mm. that? I help, you know, mm. they were getting in, they had dirt under their fingernails. They were just enjoying mm. seeing and doing and the fascination with a centipede and an earwig and a yeah, pill bug. And, that was me. But of course, that's mm. very unusual today in cities yeah. because the, the best it gets for the majority of North American and probably world kids now is rectangular. It's a digital virtual reality where they see some comic representation of a bug on the screen and there's a game and you zap, zap the bug. And so, yeah. you know, if, if that's all you're doing, just a virtual reality, then you're not out there with dirt under your fingernails from the age of four onwards. I don't feel very good about that because all the signs of, you know, um, child development are that those values and interests are sparked very early in life. And if the only thing we can manage is, you know, digital, digital distractions, uh, <laughs> we're out of luck. So the optimistic side of it, because as I say, uh, people are even now more confined to their home plate, as it were. There's so much to discover in, in the garden. You don't have to, you know, have an expensive holiday to Costa Rica or the Canadian Arctic to be inspired. But it has to be real. That's the key difference. And yeah. my life, I've been inspired by great mentors. I mentioned David Attenborough, Monty Hummel, who, uh, along with David Suzuki, really built... Uh, over my lifetime, the environmental movement in Canada. He poached me from the federal government. I was uh, downtown Toronto. I discovered the first peregrine falcons, the world's fastest animal, uh, recolonized uh, the Toronto area. It nested up on the ledge of a downtown building at King and Young. Wow. And uh, wow. run a press conference, the Minister of the Environment, Charles, was there. And, World Wildlife Fund had missed the boat, actually, because uh, I, with the um, Environment Canada guys who did the, the weather network stuff on the early internet um, days, you know, we put a camera in the back of the nest. It was all over the place, and people came wow. down at lunch and said, well, what's happening? Can I look at the camera? Have the eggs hatched yet? You know, that kind of fascination, mm -hmm. guys in suits and everything. And um, Monty Hummel came down and, he contributed a small amount of money and uh, he 
put me to one side and said, we've got a job going. Would you like to come and work for us? Thank goodness. And, you know, I actually, when I was a, a young traveling hippie in India, I, I, I did just literally bump into Sir Peter Scott, who uh, was one of the founders of World Wildlife Fund globally. And he gave me an hour of his time advising me at the age of 19 with hippie and dirty clothes on. The director's job at Wildlife Fund, I couldn't believe it. <laughs> Never dreamed of that. But there I was for 24 very good years. But the real, the real trick is, of course, now with seven plus billion people, I mean, no one organization can turn the corner so that humanity operates within its limits on one planet. It has to be a highly collaborative thing. And it has to be well-structured with everybody playing a part. And really, the, the world's social and environmental organizations did a review about five or six years ago of how the last 50 years have been. This is Oxfam, World Wildlife Fund, Conservation International Care, etc. And they concluded that everyone was working hard, but we were failing miserably, mainly because there was one fundamental mistake and assumption that had been carried through those five decades. And that was that if you collected some numbers and did some really learned peer-reviewed statistics um, and published a paper and then you ran a news conference, uh, everyone will pay attention and take the proper appropriate action to avoid whatever was trending in the wrong direction, whether it was you know, social or gender inequities or racial inequities or you know, ecological unsustainability and biodiversity declines. Well, that assumption was fundamentally flawed. And, you know, that's through my career. Of course, what was realized is that there was really little attention paid to the emotional uh, components. And so what humans tend to do when they're in positions of hungry power is take numbers uh, that might be threatening and then they work out ways to dismiss or they create some alternative institute with a few PhD people to come up with some other bent statistical analysis. And so the poor old public now are deluged every day by some complete digital information overload. They don't know how to differentiate yeah. one form of analysis from another. They just put the blinkers up and carry on trying to do their own little thing. So yeah. really is... A, a, a part about four or five years ago for me and colleagues at World Wildlife Fund um, in developing what we called our Nature Connected Communities program, which actually had been ignored by largely urban people, I mean, farmers and rural people and indigenous folks living off the Catalina, etc., uh, were far more in touch. So that wasn't, wasn't necessary for them. But with, you know, over three quarters of us living in urban areas, we had to find something to reach people in a tangible way, not just a, another call webinar and digital game. Led to Project Swallowtail, which in West Toronto, uh, where I live, is really taking off to reconnect these areas of habitat that do exist, one garden at a time, connecting one park to another. And you can, whether you're young or old, if you pay attention, you can see that now. The swallowtail butterflies, the monarchs, the 350 bee species and all the birds 
are actually becoming more frequent in our neighborhoods and their diversity is outstanding if you actually stop and look at them and that's what the COVID pandemic is actually allowing for some people is is more time to to pause and think and not only admire things in the garden but paint the grass take it away take some of the asphalt away grow some native plants for pollinators and wildlife but also grow some great local food for yourselves and you know that's thousands of people now on these Grow Food Toronto uh, Facebook sites and all the neighborhood sites where people are exchanging seed, advice, plants, and and produce, actually. So, and of course, most of those um, vegetable species that need pollinating, of course, are pollinated far more efficiently when they've got the native uh, pollinating insects. And so your, your yield goes up if you've got enough uh, habitat from local native plants in your garden to su- support those those bees and flies and moths and butterflies that pollinate your vegetables as well. <laughs> it's about emotional and connection. Well, and I want to ask you about that, Peter, because that journey that you just described and seeing the, the diversity increasing or returning uh, with some of the species that uh, that have been sort of decimated over the years, when you talk about emotional connection, and you're, you're in, in my views, you're bang on. I mean, at the end of the day, we can create science and reports and, and, and push information and programs out there that keep us in our head, you know, keep us in our, at that intellectual level. And I think we all need that moment where the, you know, the feedback or the observation shifts from an intellectual um, awareness to an emotional or energetic awareness. So when you see that happen, like, and you're describing this connection to the youth, to the children of today, you know, those future generations, what is it about the work that you do with Project Swaltail? And what is it with some of the things that you did prior to your retirement from the World Wildlife Fund that you could really say, hey, you know, this is the kind of communication, this is the kind of connection we need to build more out. And when you talk about focusing and, and being together, because you're right, if we're all focusing on different initiatives, different priorities, then really very little gets done in a good direction or any direction. So so two big questions. What is it about the emotional yeah. connection that you really focus on? And then how do you get that energy to get people focusing in a, you know, in a solid direction? Mm. Well... A big part of that emotional connection, whether it's in your garden or any further afield, uh, requires you, an individual, to actually stop and slow down. Because if you're running mm. like a rat in a treadmill through life, as tends to be the way for many people, uh, really you have no energy and time to do that. And mm. There's a wonderful man in Los Angeles who's called the, the guerrilla or gangster gardener, Ron Finley. But he, in prison for some stupid case, decided he was going to turn Los Angeles South Central, I think, is their bad, poor area, into a food you may be familiar with in Elmar. But what he did with his community when he came out in these areas where, you know, the, the big areas of municipal sidewalk, um, 
areas between one highway and the other. Plenty of land, beautiful climate. But they planted up with vegetables and flowers. But he always, they made, still made sure that they put uh, a resting area, like a bench or some contemplative um, log or some opportunity to someone to sit down and think. And it's only when you stop and do as people can do right now in gardens, just stop and look and listen and shut your eyes and breathe. And then you start to see and hear and smell and experience things, which you just miss. if you're just in a frenzy mm. whiz. I mean, I remember when um, Stephen Cackley, who, uh, when he retired as premier of the Northwest Territories, he came to work for me in our WWF program. And, you know, he was a wonderful consultant because he espoused the Satu Dene core principles, you know, better than anyone else I'd ever worked with. And, um, you know, whenever he came to Ottawa, of course, the prime minister ministers wanted to meet with us because we had Stephen Cackley with us. But Stephen was all, every time he said, well, how is it down in the rat race in the jungle? He says, the mm-hmm. problem for conservation and sustainability is, is not it's you industrial guys, you know? And he's totally mm-hmm. right. As soon as the, this is my, when my forefathers come back as the big embarrassment, we ignore the imperialist side of it. Of course, the invention of that internal combustion engine started the uh, of unsustainable use of resources and green and all that kind of stuff. It was there, all that. But, you know, that really empowered people and cultures and nations really dominate and make major incursions into the natural world and all the resources that people soaked up. But, you know, the, the incorporation of, you know, the, those seven-generation thinkings, uh, mm. which are at the core of settled land claims, the core of indigenous thinking around the world, not just in Canada, is, is so basic. And, I mean, that is sustainability when you don't really make a significant decision without having thought through uh, what you do. What, sorry, what seven generations hence, your great-great-great-grandchildren, yeah. um, would have to deal with. And I was so struck. I was coming back in the car from somewhere locally, and I just had to pull off the road. The CBC ran a program, I think it was called, just a month ago, it was called Will I Be a Good Ancestor? Mm-hmm. And it was just wonderful because... If you could get people today, whether you're, you know, CEO of a company or a minister or whatnot or premier or just folks like you and I, if you could get people to think about their answer to that question, will doing this make me a good ancestor? An awful lot of what we do would be done differently or not done at all because the consequences of it, contributing to take the plastic bags announcement uh, just last week and finally thank goodness and minister of the environment is starting to take firm steps to catch up with other countries um so there's single-use plastics are sitting there in giant you know nation-sized patches um they've already been gobbled up and killed hundreds of thousands of marine animals i mean because we didn't think about where this stuff goes what we're going to do with it and so you know, until we change that, 
um, and some of the some of the best projections for where we're headed are actually by you know the World Bank and Economic Fora and you know Mark Carney and many other people who are their careers as very learned economists. So you know we we are not on a um, helpful track here, and you know unless we change that as well as the grassroots connections and actions I talk about and choose to do in my uh, phase now, post-full-time work, um, you know, we're not going to be leaving um, this planet in manageable shape for our, our descendants. So I'm optimistic, but that requires me to work even harder, door by door, street by street, to make sure these people are at least starting to overcome what they've inherited from those early settlers, which was a European, highly managed, very resource-intensive form of garden maintenance, which is lawns that consume massive amounts of water, pesticide, fertilizer, um, herbicides, and then require lots of greenhouse gases with lawn mowers, etc., and contribute virtually nothing to ecological systems that really drive our food and natural world systems. So, you know, getting rid of a lot of these laws and replacing them with something that's useful is a major urban uh, contribution to being a good ancestor. So I intend to go down in the record books as trying at least to be a good ancestor, not going down when great-grandchildren talk about me or us um, as they're the ancestors didn't care. And it's interesting that you're describing this, this notion of manicured lawns and, and uh, the whole, you know, the whole British colonization that's happened over the last hundred and 150 years. It's, yeah. it's really shifting the global culture. So I, I do have two questions out of that, out of that train of thought. You know, looking at looking at your origins and sort of the, you know the whole creation and and really growth of the British Empire up until at least in the 60s. What what uh, what shifts are you seeing globally from from a so let's say a, a decolonialization effort? That's sort of the first question. And then more specifically and more locally, when you talk about transforming lawns back to natural spaces you know, some of the benefits and, and strategies around that. So a global question around decolonization mm. and, and then what does that look like, you know, for the, for the average citizen? <laughs> wow. Well, <laughs> <laughs> that colonization, the imperialist stuff, um, embarrassing as it is now, um, at the time, that was the norm. And so... Mm-hmm. That's been the way through history. When people function according to how the social system values and expectations are at a certain time in history. So that's the way people thought and did things when they came to Canada. And of course, now people are trying to demolish statues and denigrate, you know, the stupidity and the unfairness. Of, but, but that was their norm at that time. So. You know, there may have been good individuals. They were just operating according to the operating rules uh, of the day. And we believe now that 
I'm so glad to be living in Canada because I think it's a far better opportunity to demonstrate how to live in a more inclusive, equitable way than in the UK and some other countries where, you know, there's still an awful lot of very nuances put in just to retain that wealth in the hands of a few select people and not to really anything up um, in terms of inequity <laughs> or changing inequities. So I think Canada's got one of the world's best opportunities to show what that looks like. So, of course, you know, I'm left as politically and I try to support and promote all of that to show that that model of sharing and respect um, is possible and is better. So that includes sharing and respect of the world's resources, not just of the humans. So the other bit, right. you know, I suppose the second bit, and we're not going to change what happens in the UK. I mean, the 200 countries in the world don't seem to do very well trying to influence each other, nor does yeah. the United Nations. I mean, that itself is a, a major problem. But at least what you can do uh, is try and get your neighborhood, your family, yourself, your town, your city, your people, scaling it up. Um, and humans do tend to follow uh, when they can see a good a good person stepping forward and doing something which actually leaves them in better shape, you know. Um, and these days you can communicate something good and catchy uh, pretty quickly. And, uh, yeah. you know, social media, as I think it's a very dangerous tool, it can be a very... Um, powerful tool. I mean, you know, the Arab uprisings and many other social justice issues have actually been accelerated and improved because of cell phones and social media when it would have taken centuries before. So I think that's the way that, you know, bringing it back home to initiatives like Project Swallowtail, like, you know, community gardens, uh, food sharing, um, networks such as we've had um, victory gardens as well um, there's a resurgence in those as there was in wartime but you know that sense of community improvement and in inclusion I think can happen through grassroots initiatives like this West Toronto Project Swallowtail and my, my uh, belief and of course hope is that you know, when a bunch of us work together, and that's the way it's happening, it's not just one organization, it's you know, the, the business and group associations and, you know, Metrolink and the City of Toronto and numerous environmental and social groups and social enterprise groups working together. When you can show what's been achieved, what it looked like before and after, then you've got a story to tell, and you can tell it powerfully through the rectangular screen, and devices, and others will look at it and say, wow, why can't we do that? And a good example of that was a couple of years ago, while I was still at World Wildlife Fund, there was a, a senior from um, a place called the Fairview Nursing Home, which is Gladstone and Dundas area. And she was at a meeting I was at, and she said, 
oh, it would be so nice if we could have something nice to look at out our window. We're in there every day eating our meals and watching telly, and it's just brown, boring grass there looking out on the lane. So I went along, and of course, within a year, we'd taken 30% of the uh, really pathetic grass away that landscape contract company came and looked after best they could and it's this mm-hmm. beautiful inspiring native plant um, pollinator garden there and the seniors are so happy and it's it just takes you know a year a year and a half and the community and the school were involved you know and that was when we went unfortunately i just heard 10 days ago that finally that seniors home had an outbreak of covid so 26 of the people in there mm-hmm. uh, sit on the around here but you know when you look at that and you think about these people who really don't get out but they're looking at the activity of the butterflies and the bees and the colors through the seasons that's that's such a sort of shot in the arm for me um giving them a bit of delight at their uh, sunset stage in life so you know the um, many other seniors' homes and many other companies that you know have offices and factories and land around could could well find it very easy and beneficial to do that, and and more are because they realise that the staff like to have that sort of setting for lunch rather than just sitting on a bench looking out at the cars. Yeah, well, you know, and it's interesting that. Just this week, there was something very interesting in the local paper in the Toronto Star about a, a, a couple, Nina Marie Lister and Jeremy uh, Gus, who yeah. have a naturalized lawn, right? And the city yeah. bylaw basically saying you need to you need to cut your weeds. Uh, what, so how does that how does that energize you? And do you see this? You know, yeah. really, what this podcast is about? We're talking about local citizens trying to change and here we are in in particular in the city of toronto where you're trying to promote naturalization and now uh, and the city i know there's parts of the city administrations that are definitely in support of moving forward with more habitats and more naturalization but then we have the you know the manicured lawn supporters who all of a sudden are using bylaw to to yes. withhold, you know, sustain something that's not sustainable. What's your What's yeah. your view on this story? Oh, it's. I mean, that's a great example, Ilmar, of um, the lag between public expectations and modern values, and the outdatedness of a piece of regulation. So that mm. bylaw was written, you know, probably before you and I were born, and. Yeah. You know, the focus on grass and weeds um, based on this must manage everything in straight lines, must look uniform, was was from the the last century and the century before that, and before that in Europe. (laughs) Uh, And we don't live in those times anymore. So uh, a number of people, me included, uh, and Landscape Ontario included, actually representing 5,000 landscapers, $8 million industry in Ontario have written to the mayor of Toronto saying, for goodness sake, you know, here we are in 2020. You really need to rewrite that and make it reflective of what um, Torontonians in a cosmopolitan 
new age uh, where we're trying to restore things to better balance uh, needs. So they'll, they'll get there, but it's remarkable to discover that uh, the city employees funded by you and I ultimately are, mm -hmm. are still actually feeling and, and presumably trained that they have to go and give bar or tickets and slap fines onto people in their department trying to implement a piece of legislation that's 50 or 100 years out of date. Uh, that is such a, such a terrible way. So I'm pretty optimistic now, particularly because Landscape Ontario representing the industry in Ontario, they get it. And, you know, Mark and Ben Cullen, key influencers in the media of um, garden values and ethics, they get it too. I mean, those are the gardens of yesterday, but gardening today cannot um, ignore the legacy. We all want to be good ancestors, and that involves allowing for more diversity. It's about thinking ahead and keeping up with the times, and that, that's a fine example of a piece of legislation that wasn't with the times. You know, same thing when people um, pushed back on the... Uh, health effects of smoking, you know. It took about mm -hmm. 25 years, but uh, eventually society got there and they, they now don't deny there are major health disbenefits to heavy smoking. So, Yeah, and let me, let me ask you, Peter, because you mentioned Mark and Ben, and, you know, for those in the community that are avid or that have been long-time avid gardeners, I mean, Wheel and Cullen was a... Was a was a mainstay in in downtown Toronto for uh, garden centers and Mark, yeah. of course, the son of of the original founders of of, of the Wheel and Cullen Empire. And yeah. I remember when Mark first came on the scene. I think it was probably in the early '90s, maybe late '80s. And you know, he was revolutionary in his his approach to communicating and sharing. You know, connecting with the community. I and I know you've known him a long time. You you also now say that his his son is coming on the scene. What do you see as that journey comes from the original sort of founders of that of that garden center through the times? Well, it's it's evolution, yeah. And um, you know, from the time when there was no such thing as a garden <laughs> in <laughs> settlements of people who lived in this bit of land uh, to Mark's era and Wheel and Cullen, and Mark's the same age as me. And, uh, you know, I was there last year at the launch of his latest book down at the um, Canada Blooms Home Show. And, you know, he'd given two chapters of that book to Ben. And when you read that Ben's two chapters, <laughs> you know, all credit to Mark for having started to delegate. Um, you know, Ben's chapters are basically saying, well, you know how it was when my dad was my age? Well, you know, gardeners of today and tomorrow actually moving away from that. They know it's not sustainable. They don't want that kind of heavily intensive chemical-based thing. And here's the kind of garden we're going to see, progressive gardening. So Mark's mm -hmm. sort of handing over the reins uh, stepwise to his son Ben. So I think that's great. But that's evolution of people's, value sets, paradigm thinking, you know, I mean, I'm involved with uh, people locally here on Francisville. Uh, you know, like St. George, it had a beautification 
exercise when the street was overhauled, wider sidewalks, you know. Of course, lots of people pushed back. Oh, we've got to have two cars in each lane, you know, blah, blah, blah. But, you know, it, it wins awards now because, mm-hmm. you know, people move on and they don't want the old-fashioned type streets. They want diversity. And so now people are debating what kind of plants to have in those beds. And, you know, these these things just change through time. So keeping up with the times is really key. And I would like to think that regulators and everybody um, can be good ancestors and remember every day, every hour, to think about the long-term consequences of mm-hmm. what they're doing and saying because uh, it's game over if, if we don't think about those. So as we, as we come close to the end of our conversation, I want to ask you to share with all your experience and all, all the wisdom that you've gained and you've shared over the years, what would your call to action be? for those listeners that are, you know, having gardens and and creating space in anywhere in Canada? Well, wherever you are, I mean, you can think globally, act locally. I mean, that's a phrase that was coined when I was young by somebody smarter than me. So combining that with, uh, you know, Obama's, yes, we can. Um, and that incorporation in everything you do with that consideration for the long term uh, is critical. You can combine that and express it in your garden for sure. But you, if you have a you know, 17th floor balcony, you can, in your human footprint, you can combine all of those things in your decisions about what you buy and where it comes from, do a bit of research. Don't necessarily buy things that come from the southern hemisphere when you could have got something locally. I mean, all of that is fundamental. It's it's really an attitude paradigm shift. Uh, and you know, when GDP was invented, it wasn't invented as if the world was going to grow forever and ever at maximum GDP. Yeah. So unfortunately. As many, Mark Carney would be the first to say, yeah, it's high time we basically came up with a different kind of economic measure that does incorporate these things because we're toast. I mean, he said that in many interviews and many others have at the UN and World Bank. So, you know, you can scale that all back to local. So some combination of those things, you know, act locally, but think about the long-term and the broader global consequences of your decisions uh, is key. And, of course, the other key is <laughs> not being shy about communicating this to mm. your friends, neighbors, and others, because if you're just doing it yourself in a little vacuum box uh, nobody knows about it, then you haven't really spread the word. Well, with with that too, Peter, you know, with Project Swallowtail and the Pollinator Partnership Canada organization, do share with us where we can reach you and where we can reach these organi- organizations and what we can all do to engage in, in, in this initiative. 
Yeah, well, the, the West Toronto one, uh, of course, that showcase project now, that's getting closer to being ready to showcase elsewhere and be repeated. Uh, you can find that website at um, projectswallowtail.ca, but also at bottomatorpartnership.ca. That's the North American organization that's really leading leading it now. And, of course, you can just key in these words, you know, Toronto Pollinator Gardens. The city of Toronto has a progressive um, program now on there's grants available for people to uh, start the Pollinator Garden. There's the North American Native Plant Society uh, has a great website and a list of all the nurseries uh, within reach of um, southern Ontario or in southern Ontario that stock and many can deliver or send you the, the, the best plants to grow, and there's plenty of advice there for that. So, you know, I, I really think that's the basic start because, you know, I, my career has focused in the first two-thirds on individual species, but I, of course, now realize that the real solution is when you come at it from the habitat standpoint. So if you provide the right habitat, then all manner of wonderful species will come and benefit and nature gets to decide which ones you you can't really engineer nature very well mm. and you'll derive the benefits from whoever shows up people will find that incredibly fulfilling i mean often within hours of one of these new plants flowering uh you, you, you see these butterflies and bees that you may not have seen in your garden, but including Toronto's emblematic uh, emerald sweat bee. Unfortunately, due to technical challenges, we were unable to close with the interview from Peter in our usual manner, and I really appreciate Peter's contributions.